0: Today, we're talking to Nicholas from Anthology about optimizing product development feedback loops. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern
1: CTO. What's up, Nicholas? Is that how you say it? Is it Nicholas? Nicholas is perfect. Yeah, you did better than most. It's a different spelling than I'm currently used to, but typically I find that when it is different, it's usually said the same.
0: That is accurate, and it is it is a very old spelling. Even so, I'm I'm from Belgium originally. So uh, Dutch is my is my native language. So this is kind of a Dutch version of the name. I like it. Even in Dutch, it's kind of a a weird spelling.
1: But Nicholas is is absolutely perfect. I love it, man. This is great. I was super excited to talk with you specifically because we have a like. Somewhat similar background and, you know, web technologies and and things of that nature. And I did some, you know, learning education stuff a few years ago as well. So I got, I got to learn about some of those technologies, not near the, I just barely scratched the surface, not near the level that you're involved with ed tech, but I was hoping that you could give me like a brief origin story of like, where did you start? How did you get involved with technology and how did you get here today? Yeah, it's a
0: it's a good question. So the um, basically my my undergraduate degree was in uh, was in computer science. Uh, so that's that's kind of really where I started. I had kind of interest in that area for basically forever. So as I was kind of finishing up my undergraduate degree, we got the opportunity to do a foreign internship as part of kind of a European Union program. And so I absolutely wanted to do it. I always wanted to move abroad. So, uh, there was actually an opportunity, one of the opportunities or one of the foreign internships we could do was at the University of Cambridge. And so, we could go on-site for three months, and actually, it was the kind of the department that was responsible for educational technology at the University of Cambridge that was accepting these, these foreign internship students. So, I went, I went over there, uh, had a really good time, uh, really enjoyed those three months, and then at the end of the three months, they actually offered me a job. I almost pretty much straight after college rolled into rolled into educational technology and then I worked for them for a few years um, and did a, did a whole bunch of a whole bunch of things, mostly on the kind of the software development side of things. So I built different systems for the university. And then at the end of those two years, I kind of decided to carry on my studies uh, a little longer. and so I did a I did a master's at Cambridge as well, given that I was local in computer speech, text, and internet technology. So really kind of natural language processing, machine learning before it was cool, and and those those types of things. And then I, I kind of ventured outside of educational technology for a little bit as I was kind of wrapping up that program. I spent some time at, at Microsoft Research, but it was really good from kind of an industry um, experience perspective. And then kind of decided after doing that for a while and really not enjoying the Kind of the, the writing up side of of research, kind of decided to go back to to the roots and uh, into educational technology again, and really have been been doing it ever since. So I've I've worked for multiple universities uh, doing educational technology, then went into kind of consulting and running running my own consulting company where I worked with different universities on kind of all types of different educational technology projects, and then. Was one of the founders from a very small educational technology startup. That startup was um, was acquired at some point by uh, by Blackboard, a, a large educational technology player. And then we kind of joined in, and I'm uh, I'm still here. So it's been kind of a long road, but a a relatively direct one. Yeah.
1: So you've been through a couple of these merging of cultures together, right? Quite a few, actually, yeah. So the,
0: and, and and kind of very different perspectives there as well. So when kind of with the small startup, there was uh, essentially five or six of us that moved into, we were very early stage uh, and basically moved into a large organization like Blackboard, which has several, several thousand or had several thousand employees. It had multiple products in its portfolio. So that was, that was just very different, um, kind of moving that small group of kind of cross-functional people into a larger organization. And then with kind of the the merger between Anthology and Blackboard, which happened about kind of four to five years after I joined, after we joined Blackboard, it was very different in nature. Just to give you a little bit of background, so Anthology itself was was basically founded about two years ago. And basically that was the combination of three educational technology companies. And so with Blackboard joining in, that's essentially makes four of them so it's four different cultures coming coming together into a single organization but it's four kind of relatively large organizations coming together so that yeah from a from a cultural perspective it's been it's been really interesting yeah
1: what have you been learning as the leader of of people throughout this this merging of cultures
0: <laughs> that's a difficult one i mean one of my one of my key beliefs i guess is is never lose agility and regardless of, of kind of the size of the organization, always try to act as if you are still part of a small startup. So you don't get bogged down by I don't want to say I'm an anti-process person, but I think I think process is useful on a day-to-day basis, but you gotta kind of just roll through it or or kind of poke through it whenever you whenever you need to go around it just to be as, as efficient as possible. So never kind of lose lose agility would be my would be my big lesson. Uh, the other big lesson that I have is never let kind of functional silos get in the way of getting work done. Like you don't, as a product organization, you don't get work done inside of kind of one functional area like development or like UX design or like product management. You actually get work done by working together across those silos. So it's really all about making sure that there's no silos in the first place. I'm a very strong believer in that. And, and I think my background kind of, points to that as well, because as I said, I started off as an engineer, did that for several years, was very closely involved on kind of the design side of products as well. And then ever since I joined Blackboard, I've basically been kind of operating as a product manager and really kind of more on the on the kind of roadmap strategy, client vision side of things. And so I've been on kind of all different sides of, of the cross-functional fence, I guess. And I, I just see the the real value in, in making sure that you work as a very kind of tightly coupled cross-functional team as, as much as possible over kind of being siloed in, in in kind of different functional silos. So those have been my two lessons is basically remain as agile and as, as nimble as uh, as is possible. Yeah.
1: If you see me looking down, I'm taking notes, just so you know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not texting my wife. <laughs> when you get to work on these projects? Do you have like one specific product that you that you manage, or you get to work on multiple products? How does that work for you? So I basically, I'm usually kind of focused on a single product. So when we, as
0: we were kind of acquired by Blackboard, I I then basically let uh, kind of let product management for that product that was acquired for about the next four years. So we really grew it from basically pre revenue to kind of I, I think it is now the. I think the third or fourth biggest product in the combined anthology portfolio. So it is. So that was really interesting to really grow on that growth trajectory with a product from kind of almost its birth to to basically being a well-established product in the industry. And then a few months after the pandemic, it actually I made a I made a jump to a different product. So uh, the biggest product in the anthology portfolio is the the Blackboard Learning Management System, which. Many people will have used in in college back in the day. We're actually going through the process of. So I'm I'm overseeing product management for for that product now, which actually includes a much wider product management team that I that I had up. And what we're doing with that product is we're really kind of kind of we're really kind of developing the what I'll call the next generation version of it, and and kind of really modernizing the learning management system. Improving its usability, improving its UI, improving its capabilities, innovating there as well. So that one's very different. That one we're essentially starting from, I don't quite want to call it a legacy product, but a product that's been established for a very long period of time, does show some signs of aging, has been losing a little bit of market share in the market, and really yeah. getting kind of getting it to the next version of the product, which if all goes well should be should be much better. And we're kind of in in that process of of seeing Kind of our our clients and institutions move from the old to the new, so it's it's a very different type of process in this case. But it's it's definitely equally interesting and probably more challenging. Yeah.
1: Well, on behalf of the entire next generation, thank you. Because I mean, I've been I've it, been around. It was time.
0: It was time. Yeah. yeah.
1: First of all, it, everybody knows what it is. It's it's ubiquitous. At, like. Like in the college system, right? And it has a very distinct look. You can see from across the room. You're like, oh, they're on blackboard, right? And for it to, you know, get modernized and look, you know, more like a Silicon Valley type application would be really sweet. Yep. And I'm sure a lot of people would would really enjoy that. And that's what you have to do, right? It's really hard too because you juggle like, okay. You've got to keep the current systems going. You have to keep everything operating. And you also have to innovate. And then you have to make incredible amounts of design decisions on how you actually do that transfusion or how, how you do this. So it's, it's, I've done that before. I've taken a product that's, you know what, we'll use the word established instead of legacy.
0: Established is a great I've taken word, an yeah.
1: established product and I've made a new version of it. It is not easy. So I think it's pretty sweet that you're doing that. It's hard for sure.
0: And I mean, especially for something like the learning management system, which is extremely kind of feature rich and, and just has a lot of edge cases and kind of more, I don't quite want to call them niche features, but kind of a lot of features that are used by a small percentage of, of kind of the user base. And there's a very long tail to this problem. And yeah, it's it's hard for sure. And then we've got literally kind of tens and hundreds of thousands of instructors that have all built courses in the old system that at some point do need to move over to to the newer version of the system so there's a lot of uh, yeah there's there's no lack of challenges I'll, I'll put it that way but as you said if we are if we are successful we'll actually get students and instructors into something more modern a little bit more personalized a little bit more yeah just a little bit more more fun and, and better to use here. Yeah.
1: When, when you get it, yeah, um, <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, right, because that's that's what we want. I'm I'm pulling for, and by the way, when when you get to the point where it's like public or whatnot, when it's not private, send me some screenshots too, because my wife and me, we, we everybody knows what blackboard looks like, and so I want to be like, check it out. This is what this is what it is now. So so, so it's entirely public already. We actually have oh, it is. kind of more and more
0: institutions that have adopted the new version. So I I will send you some screenshots. You will.
1: Oh, you will awesome. definitely
0: look that it uh you will definitely see that it looks very different.
1: Oh nice. Other than the user interface, user experience, what's the trends right now happening in education technology? I mean I kinda see this AR thing happening or like virtual reality. And I kinda eh at it like i think it might have very specific use cases for very specific types of learning but joining the class with ar goggles on i'm like eh, i don't think I'm, i don't think we're there yet where do you see the technology going right now for education technology
0: yeah it, it's interesting i actually agree with you on on things like kind of ar for example i think there's a place for it but it is a very it's a very specific place where for certain programs like like medicine programs for example there may be specific activities where it makes sense for, but I, I agree. I don't think it's something that we'll all be sitting out with kind of AR goggles on at, at, at kind of some point in the near future. And I mean, ironically enough, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of different trends. One of the things that I think COVID has done is, I mean, first of all, it's made educational technology kind of ubiquitous. It's, it's kind of, its adoption has gone up a lot. Because of that, what I actually think will be one of the main trends, and this is not going to sound very exciting, but I think is going to be one of the main trends for the next several years, is really on kind of better use of the technology that exists. And actually, there's a lot to be done there. And this is really from a from a pedagogical perspective, making sure that the that kind of, I guess, modern course design principles, that kind of modern engagement activities, that those are made that those are kind of a seamless part of the digital course environment as well. You can kind of engage with other students and engage in activities in a way that feels similar like you're doing in in face-to-face activities. And really the kind of the sector as a whole has to, or had to come quite a long way. Before the pandemic, a lot of the use from a learning management system was essentially as a a file distributor or, or, or a filing cabinet where instructors would put up their they would upload the PDFs for the course, and then maybe some of the examination would be online as well. But that would really be the extent of it for many, kind of many instructors and many courses. And that's gotten a lot richer since. And I, I think there'll be as we go forward, it's just that kind of the kind of the focus on, on course quality, the focus on course design, I think will be will be very strong. Because I mean a lot of institutions have gone partially back to to kind of face-to-face, but they're the online component of that is, is, is much stronger than it was before. And, and it, there, it just, it's, it's, got to, it's got to be just as engaging as far as the student's concerned. So I think there will be a lot of emphasis on the on the fundamentals and making sure that kind of high-quality course design kind of pulls through into, into the online space as well. And, and a lot of institutions have made a lot of progress in this area. The few other things that, that I think we're starting to see is, is just... And this is again kind of the sector I think catching up to what's happening elsewhere, is just better use of, I guess, personalization and data, in kind of a way that, it kind of meets what you can do in in other, in other systems that we use on a day to day basis. And I'll use, I'll kind of use one example from something that we're actively working on. So something we're actively working on is called progress tracking. So it's the idea that as a student, you can very easily see. What you've already done in the course, where you've left off, where you need to go next, and just just kind of personalizing that experience a little bit more in a way that you wouldn't even think about it when you see it in a when you see it in the system, it's something you would expect. And so, making sure that the student has got that very personalized experience where everything's kind of adjusted to where they are in the course, and they can receive personalized feedback, they can see where they are. A lot of that, a lot of that can be automated as well. But then also the flip side of that, actually starting to provide more information to the instructor about kind of how students are, kind of engaging in a course, uh, kind of where they're at, where they may be falling behind. Just to give, I, I'm not a huge believer in kind of data making decisions in an educational context, but I'm a huge believer in data providing more insight and providing essentially allowing instructors, allowing institutions, allowing students to make more informed decisions because they can see more of the information that surrounds them in a way that's, that's actionable to them. So that's something that I'm, the kind of whole concept of using the data more to allow other, to allow the people involved to make more informed decisions. I think we'll see a lot more of that and we we kind of see that across, across the sector. And then the last one that kind of comes back to, to my first one, which is, as we've been doing research with students, especially throughout the pandemic, the number one feedback that we got from students is that the learning management system and the digital environment can feel like a very lonely place. That's kind of across all learning management systems. And that's a big problem because we know from the research that one of the big factors to student success is how much of a sense of belonging that they have with their peers, with their program, with their instructor, with their, with their course, with the institution. And if that isn't present in an online environment, that's obviously a, a kind of a very big challenge and so i think we'll see a lot of focus on not necessarily turning educational technology into social networks i think i think the opposite but making sure that the that it provides the right triggers i guess for that sense of belonging between the student and their peers their instructor their course to be to be created just seamlessly as part of the experience and a lot of that comes back to course design activity design as well but i it's something that we refer to as kind of the collective or sense of sense of collective. Uh, and I, I think we'll see a lot of, we'll see a lot of focus on that. So not very inspiring, uh, kind of those three, but I, I think a lot of focus on, on just the fundamentals and making better use of, uh, of what's, of what's available.
1: Yeah. No, I like that sense of community aspect. And there's all different types of ways to implement it. I didn't, Set out to get into learning technology. So I started the show, right? And then we kept having really great people on and they would share advice. And so one day I had a guest say, Hey, like I heard this advice from, you know, CTO of NASA. Can you clip that, like take that three minute piece of advice and send it to like all my leaders so that they can go do that and then we can talk about it. And I was like, uh, Okay, cool. So I built like a quick Rails app like over the weekend that would, you know, help distribute it and everything. And we sent it out, and then they could write a little comment box about like what happened when they implemented that exercise. And so what we ended up doing, it grew into an entire business that raised capital. We grew, it was awesome. Yeah. And it was it was basically like a leadership training platform, like specifically for leadership. And so many customers would try to get us to be like an LMS. And that's when I started learning what an LMS was. But ultimately, it didn't do super well. Because when the pandemic hit, we lost like 80% of our business in a week because people didn't need leadership training to run their business. It was something that was nice to have, right? It's necessary to train leaders, but it's not necessary on a PNL. right? So it's funny that I uh, happen to be meeting you now because like two weeks ago, we have like three or four customers that are still on it. You know, it's just not like a main thing that we do. I said, "Hey, we, we've got these three or four customers, but let's like open it up to the world and just put it out there because we spent so many years working on it, and ultimately, it we had way more success over here in the media world. And so, I don't want to just like let the tool rot or or die or what whatnot. So, I was like, let's open it up. So, we're we're kind of in that process right now. So, I'm pretty excited about just putting that out there to the world and see what people do with it. Yeah, absolutely. You, you you'll have to send me some screenshots as well. Yeah, it was a lot of fun." you're bringing up all these memories from the past like 4 or 5 years <laughs> <laughs> fair enough and actually with the pandemic we
0: almost experienced the opposite right where kind of the learning management system was not a was not a nice to have at all it was basically the place where it was the only place where learning could really happen at that point point. and so it kind of flipped flipped the adoption entirely and almost went to almost went to 100% which has kind of brought out a lot of additional needs but also also shortcomings in in kind of the platforms that traditionally that traditionally exist. I did think it was funny that you kind of called out that people were kind of pushing you for it to do additional things and become an LMS, because that is that is kind of one, I guess, unwritten rule. I actually think there's a name for it, but it's a law in EdTech that everything eventually becomes a learning management system. <laughs> Unless you're really good at saying no to feature requests. But it's it's funny and it's kind of it's kind of true as well.
1: Well, it's part, I figured out it was partly designed because the way the organization is designed and budgets work, their budgets get allocated into specific categories and to put a new category in there. So they would look at us and they'd be like, okay, I don't want to take from the leadership activity where we fly everyone to Fiji. (laughs) I don't Mm. want to take from the leadership training budget because that's what was, that budget was allocated to that. But I can take from the LMS budget because we have, you know, surplus budget over there.
0: Fair enough. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, video, so all of our stuff was like video based too, right? Because it would be a clip from a leader and everything. One of the th- requests we started to get towards the end, but we didn't build it ultimately, was for them to respond for that text box that they're responding to the challenge. And there was like coaches involved and stuff so the coaches could respond. So it's like, this is what I did. And then they, you know, all of that. They were asking for video to be added so that they could do a video response. So instead of typing my response, I, I could go run this. Example with my team in my in my weekly standup, and then I can go on my phone and just like hit a button and be like, "All right, this is how the challenge went," and just talk for a little bit. Are you noticing that video is becoming more important? Spe- not specifically from like a education, like I'm going to make an animated video or I'm going to teach someone a course, but as far as like people interacting
0: with each other. It, it is and I, I, w- I would actually say and and that's been on a very consistent upper trajectory over the last several years and it's really more I would say micro videos that are that are that have kind of gained a lot of importance and so we actually have we, we've got this functionality as part of our learning management system as well when you for example as an instructor when you when you grade a student's work you can actually go in and record a record a very quick video to basically provide feedback to to the student, or you could do it in, in an announcement or, or basically anywhere where you're communicating with the class. And we do see actually very high levels of uptake. I would have always kind of before starting this job assumed that it's a lot more work. I mean, it feels like a lot more work to be recording all of these videos rather than just kind of entering something in text. But a lot of the instructors that we talk to actually, first of all, they think it's it's pretty efficient because they can just kind of share the thoughts that they have it's it's kind of a stream of consciousness they can just they can just get it out and it builds it builds that connection as well so we we've actually seen kind of a huge a huge increase i think in the usage of of those capabilities especially from a especially from a feedback perspective but we see similar things in like like the LMS has got discussion forums as well and in there as a student you can actually record a very quick video get that into the discussion, and then people can comment, I mean, can reply to it at, with a video as well. So those things have definitely, have definitely gone up very considerably. Obviously, with that comes a lot of demand for kind of the accessibility surrounding those videos as well, things like automated captioning, captioning, transcripts. So there, there's a lot that comes with it, so it's not quite... And there's, there's legal requirements around this as well. So it's not quite as straightforward as just allowing someone to to kind of record or, or upload a video. There's a lot that comes with it. But yeah, the use, is, the use has gone up a lot. And also from an instructional perspective, I think there's there's a lot more that we are starting to do, but also can do with video content and things like, I mean, there's some standard things like when as an instructor, you're providing instructional content on uh, or instructional video on something, you could break that up with like things like quick knowledge checks before you go to before you go to the next part. But then you can start to make it really interesting. Like you could have you could have kind of students react to different parts of the video. You can even do asynchronous watch parties where you can see what other people have kind of commented or reacted. Maybe maybe while you're not even looking at it at the same at the same time, or you can see which parts of the video have spent other students the most time on it. And there's just infinite possibilities, I guess, with video and some of it's still Unexplored, but yeah, generally, usage is going up very significantly, yeah and and then this also comes back to that collective aspect, I think where it's important that that sense of belonging is is kind of that those triggers are there, and you create that sense of belonging, and I think video is a is a good way to make it a little bit more personal. It's more difficult to automate though, but it's good to make it personal, yeah
1: yeah. How do you run these experiments, right? We're talking about all these various different ideas. How does experiments deploy like within your part of the organization?
0: <laughs> There's an infinite number of ways I I think in which kind of things make it into make it into the product. We actually have kind of quite an extensive what we call kind of client engagement framework or client feedback framework where we kind of think of it as in, in kind of three different three different phases or three different stages where um kind of the first phase is really what happens before something is even in any form of development, which we kind of refer to as our as the discovery phase and in that phase, I mean this is all about I'm a huge believer in kind of involving clients and users as as closely as possible and as continuously as possible in in the entire process and so there's there's kind of a lot of a, there's a lot of ways in which kind of clients provide. Provide feedback, they provide IDs. So we've got, for example, we've got an ID exchange, which is a place where clients and users they can submit IDs, they can see other people's IDs, they can vote on IDs, they can comment on IDs. That's actually turned into a really rich place where obviously you don't want to take every ID at face value. You want to dig into what's the underlying problem that that's kind of that you're trying to solve and, and bring those together as best as possible. But if we yeah, if we look at I think in the last 3 months we've had over a 1000 IDs submitted. We've had thousands of votes. Um actually out of the top 10 I think 6 or 7 are in active development. So that's kind of a very active part of the community and then there's other things like we we've got kind of a student advisory uh, council for example where every so often we we've got a, a large group of students that we that we engage with. We've got lots of community activities. So there's there's lots of different ways for Kind of feedback and ideas to flow into the top of the funnel, I guess. And then kind of the second phase is really about kind of once something's been picked up for exploration, for design, for for development, for for experimentation. Again, there's a whole set of activities that come with that. So we, just to give you a few examples, like we do uh, weekly focus groups, for example, we, we do multiple uh, focus groups every week where we get a small number of users in. We take them to anything from like something that's early conceptual to, to all the way down to something that's almost ready to be released. And we we kind of ask them open questions. We get designs in front of them. We get their feedback. And so those have been really useful to just get things in front of people really early on in the process. And then, but then we also do other things like, and this is really where kind of technical previews, for example, where um, we're, we're kind of, relatively rudimentary ab testing starts to come in as well so we're we're doing more and more kind of releasing things behind feature flags doing technical previews where a number of clients will sign up to kind of trial a particular new feature provide feedback about it before we then decide what to do with it and so there's there's a lot of kind of quantitative and qualitative data that goes into those into those experiments but we've tried to operationalize that a little bit so we can I mean, we typically have multiple technical previews running at the same time uh, for for different things, and so there's yeah, there's a sign-up process that we try to operationalize. There's kind of the quantitative, qualitative data that we try to operationalize as much as possible, and then and then there's the third phase, which is what happens when something's been released into production, which may actually be well, maybe not the most important phase, but um, very close to being the most important, which is Again, looking at that quantitative and qualitative feedback as as the feature becomes available so getting getting feedback directly inside of the products both as a whole as well as for individual features, looking at the usage data mapping that back to kind of the usage hypotheses that we that we set forward and then really defining the next iteration based on that so I know that was a very broad answer, but there's this very extensive kind of feedback and involvement cycle that kind of allows clients to be involved if they wish to be so in the entire process and that's ultimately how i how i like it and how i prefer it like i'm probably too transparent a person and i would basically want to involve all of our clients in in kind of the whole the whole process and the uncertainty and the the messiness that comes with it not everyone can deal with that equally well but some are are brilliant and it just allows us to put out much better products which will hopefully lead to a better a much better LMS in the future. Yeah.
1: Do the engineers themselves like obviously your product management do the engineers get to to see how they respond and be in the room when they're doing those testing? Absolutely. And this
0: this comes back to kind of continuing to operate as a cross-functional team as much as possible. And so to me it's really important that it's not just a, a product management activity but I mean just to give you a few examples the for the the weekly focus groups for example that we do we actually have a, we have watch parties for those. We don't want to overwhelm the session with kind of people from Anthology, but we've got watch parties where essentially the entire product organization is invited and actually our field organization as well to just observe and listen to the feedback. And then we'll put out special invitations to kind of the the engineers and the designers that are working on a specific feature so they can all hear it. They can all hear it firsthand. Our entire team's got access to, I mean, all of the all of the quantitative data, all of the all of the qualitative data, in the technical previews. Again, there'll be different points in time where we'll get the clients together to again provide their feedback, and we'll make sure that design engineering is is kind of directly exposed. I think the direct exposure is really important, and it it just means that things get a little lo- get less lost in translation in the first place, but secondly. It comes back to that sense of belonging as well, because I think when you when I was an engineer and I could hear something directly from a client or a user's mouth, then I, I had a much stronger connection to to that feedback. And I, I was much more I felt much more ownership over, over kind of wanting to solve that problem as well. So I I think it's one of the most important things to make sure that the full team's exposed. We're kind of trying to put everything in place to make sure that that exposure is as, as broad as possible. Obviously we can't kind of fix every or do every individual thing that's brought up in those, which uh, you always got to manage and make sure that we, we kind of design something that works for the largest common denominator first and foremost. But yeah, the team's always, the full team's always involved as,
1: as much as possible. Yeah, you guys know your stuff. Sometimes I feel like a doctor when I meet people <laughs> where I, you know, ask them how their engineering teams are working and like looking for, you know, what they're not doing that's best practices. And I've I've got nothing for you. You seem to be doing every everything that you should be doing. Who do you look up to? Where do you learn this stuff? You're reading books, you you follow somebody specifically online. How how do you get inspired with being a, a great leader and product manager? You know, that, that's actually a
0: really difficult question. I get the most inspiration from being exposed to problems, if that makes sense. So I love hearing about problems that, first of all, we have internally in our product organization. Nothing's nothing's perfect. Uh, obviously, I love talking to other people in kind of other product companies. And I, I tend to focus in on kind of what is what are the main challenges that you're currently having rather than kind of what are you doing that's working really well, although that's part of the conversation as well. But I I'm an engineer by heart, so I, I tend to focus in on, on problems and I'm wanting to solve those problems. So I I really do get most of my and I'm I'm lucky that I've I've spent a lot of time in kind of the educational technology world on the one hand and then the startup world on the other hand. And so I've got a pretty broad network, pretty varied network, just one-on-one conversations is ultimately what I what I get the most out of, I think, rather than I obviously, there's different b- kind of blogs that I follow. There's different kind of people on Twitter that I follow, but no one, no one consistent that I think has all of the answers. But kind of more picking up on on individual bits and pieces. What I, what I do know is that there's no framework in the world uh, that I, that has all of the different answers. Like it's this is why we have to be agile, nimble, and just respond to whatever comes up rather than expecting a framework or a process to fix a problem for us.
1: I fully agree. You are exactly right. There's not one specific framework or process that you can follow that, you know, people will ask me when I when I do like talks at conferences or something, oh, do you prefer like tribes or two pizza teams like Amazon or you know Netflix? I'm like, guys, it's designed backwards from the problem you're trying to solve. (laughs) They didn't decide that like pizzas were a good idea to base everything off of. They designed it backwards from whatever problem they had. And so that, that's one thing that I see a lot of newer people doing is reading, you know, a lot of different books in a lot of different ways. And rightfully so they should be gaining experience and reading other ways, but just the business side of things I have found to be incredibly valuable. If you, if you understand how those work and to your point, I'd say the most important thing there is being close to your customer, and you, and you mentioned that, and you guys clearly have an amazing system. I've actually never heard that before—that you record those types of sessions and then have watch parties. That sounds awesome. I bet you there's some like Silicon Valley tool out there for that, but
0: <laughs> there may very well be. We're just abusing Teams to uh, right. <laughs> to basically do a screen share of the, because we do these live. So as we're as we're conducting the as we're conducting the focus group, we actually have. In many cases, like literally a hundred people in a different room, just watching watching the live session and having having discussion amongst themselves. Which is, yeah, maybe there's maybe there's a business in there or a product in there,
1: yeah. <laughs> right? How that's the entrepreneurial part. Like your brain can't stop producing business ideas. I'm just like continue to focus on what's working. <laughs> so many opportunities, and the thing is, most of these are very easy to implement, as you said. Over. Over a weekend, you can get a, an MVP going and then it just takes off from there. Yeah. So you mentioned that you learn a lot from talking to people. Me too. I, I like to just talk to a bunch of different people and then I sort of get this emerging knowledge at scale, for lack of a better term, right? Where everybody's kind of saying the same thing, but differently, and then you can sort of extract principles. When you're doing one-on-ones with your teams or you know your direct reports, what type of mindset do you go in to that conversation with like what what are the key points that you want out of your one-on-one or at least you try to get most of the time
0: yeah and uh, this is this is where i may be a little less less conventional so i i do not have regular one-on-ones with people on my team i don't have them with my my direct line manager either and i i was never a huge fan of them because often they just felt like conversation for the sake of conversation if that makes if that makes sense and so i'm a huge believer of basically I, mean, I try to make it as clear as possible to my team and i've i've got about 19 product managers that are on my team so it's a fairly it's a fairly sizable team from a pm perspective i try to make it as clear as possible that whenever something comes up whenever they want to talk about something whenever there's a problem pull me in or kind of whoever the appropriate person is happy to have a conversation at any point in time. It does not have to wait for kind of a regularly scheduled uh, event. It has to be, again, I'm a huge believer in in being truly agile. And so if something happens, let's jump on a quick huddle and let's hash it out in the next 10 minutes. And if it needs an hour, we'll take an hour. And it's just, I I, kind of prefer to do these things in a very ad hoc way. Once we do have those conversations, and then this kind of comes back to kind of a lot of the process and models that, that are out there that were really designed backwards from the problem they were having. So try to make it as clear as possible that kind of once there's, I mean, so first of all, if there's uncertainties, if there's questions on how to solve something, let's let's always get back to the evidence. Let's involve our users and clients. Let's look at the quantitative data that we already have. Let's collect more if we need to. Let's not overanalyze either because kind of analysis paralysis doesn't help us either but if we can couple it back to any evidence I think that's that's hugely helpful and then this kind of the second thing is like the only thing that really matters to me is the is our output is kind of the quality of what we put out and the impact that it has and how good it does how good a job it does at solving a real problem like if we if we take that as the starting point and we do that right everything else kind of flows from there so yeah, so that's that's probably a pretty unconventional approach towards one of one to not. Not, not have them at all.
1: It's whatever works for you. Yeah. And different things will work for you at different stages in life, at different stages in your growth. And so I'm just a curious person, right? So I I believe that from what I have learned in almost 600 interviews, that it doesn't really matter what you're doing, like which system you picked or whose philosophy you're following. The one common thing between all of those is that they do it consistently and that they care they care about their people, they care about the the quality of their work, and they have something a routine you wake up, work out, you know some people wake up at five a m some people wake up at ten a m it's like you know it, it doesn't really seem to make a difference as far as achieving high levels of success it just but I've never met somebody who doesn't have like some sort of driving philosophy that they adhere to. So that's just my personal experience. I do have a, a more specific question, though, about the, I think you said 19 people that are like our project managers below you. What in your schedule or in your world allows you to get consistent time in front of those people? Do you have like a team meeting, like an all hands? Like how are they seeing your face consistently? So there, there's a number of
0: different ways. So the, so first of all, and this is probably the most consistent we have. So we actually divide because we've got a fairly large kind of combined product team, Uh, we actually organize our product team into value streams. And so each value stream has got one or more dedicated PMs, it's got one or more dedicated UX designers, and it's got one or more dedicated kind of engineering teams or um, kind of groups of engineers. And so they are, every value stream is essentially dedicated to a different kind of logical part of the system or a different kind of a different overarching problem that a particular part of the system is trying to is trying to solve so they're basically a kind of a, a continuously aligned cross-functional team that works within that value stream and so basically what we do every week and this takes up a lot of my time we have we have a meeting with each of the value streams we actually have 16 value streams and we have a meeting with each of the value streams every week and what we go through is basically, and it's more like a brain trust. It's it's kind of it's a it's an opportunity for them to kind of share what they've learned and kind of any open questions they want to get some additional feedback on. And so essentially, what we'll go through is kind of what are what what are you currently thinking? Are the main priorities for this value stream? What have we what have we learned in the last week that kind of changes how we were thinking about about things or changes prioritization? What has come in that actually kind of needs to be needs to be treated with priority or, or anything along those lines. What are some what are some designs or what are some prototypes that have that have come out in the last week? Let's let's have a look at them. Let's provide some let's provide some feedback. So we've got some with each of the 16 value streams, we've got some very kind of focused face-to-face time once every week where we do, I'll call it we'll do real work. Like we'll talk about the details of of what we're doing. So that's that's kind of one. We've got a number of other cadences as well where we kind of review. Those check-ins are more directional in nature and kind of where are we going next? Then we've got a more technical one as well, kind of across the entire team, which is more about what are the things that we expect to have in the next release? What are the things that we expect to have in the release after that? Making sure that we're on track for, for all of those. And then we do things like, we've got a monthly all hands, for example, for our product specifically. Which actually involves not just the wider product team but also kind of the sales team, the support team like everyone gets invited to that and we we just go through this is what's been done, this is what's happened, this is the progress that we've made here's some challenges that we're that we're having and and we just kind of talk through it and that's that's about an hour as well so there's there's kind of i guess a lot of individual cadences, but the the value stream ones is probably the most important because that's where we that's where we spend the most time talking about kind of substance and where changes in direction happen the most. Yeah,
1: Yeah. thank you for that. I just didn't want people to hear it and be like, oh, he doesn't have one-on-one, so I'm going to ignore my people. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's seeing them and interacting with them in other ways. I, I prefer to do real work over just having a conversation for the sake of conversation. But yeah. 100%. That, we're doing real work now. If people want to learn more and purchase the product, where do they go? Yeah, so so basically, if you go to www.anthology.com,
0: you'll be able to find kind of the the most recent or the most up-to-date information on the learning management system. I actually think there may be some, uh, some recent screenshots on there as well. Uh, and then the thing that we didn't really talk about, because it's it's kind of outside of my direct control, I guess, but Anthology does have a very broad portfolio probably the broadest that's out there from an educational technology perspective it's not just a learning management system but also a range of other teaching and learning tools there's a student information system there's a a CRM as well so if you want to learn more about that broader portfolio uh, that would be that would be the place to be as well amazing but obviously what i'm hoping to see is that especially for institutions that we work with already participate in focus groups idea exchange community sessions because that's where, that's where most of the value
1: is. Boom. Dude, we did it. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Perfect. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.